the Nile was rich and important for the Egyptians, and it was held together by happy. Happy was keeping Egypt going. So the Lord said to Moses, meet Pharaoh at the Nile. Friends, if you want to know how to gain some clout, if you want to know how to, uh, how to find your way in this world as, a, as, as a, a person who exerts their force, what you want to do is you don't want to pick on the small person. What you want to do is you want to pick on the biggest person in the yard. This is uh, prison terminology, I guess. But you want to pick on the biggest person in the yard. And you want to go find that person. And you want to go, you know, just pound on them. And this is primarily what the Lord is doing. The Lord must have taught the first prison fighting classes, I guess. I don't know. But he is primarily, this this is what the Lord is doing. He meets the Egyptians at their life force. He meets the Egyptians at their, at their life blood. And so the Lord told Moses and Aaron to go meet Pharaoh out by the Nile. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know, this was said to Pharaoh, that I am the Lord. Behold, with this staff that is in my hand, I will strike the Lord that is in the Nile, and, I sh- and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Friends, you need to hear this as we go over these plagues. You need to remember this and think on this. The Lord is answering the question, who is the Lord? The Lord is answering the question, who is the Lord? The time for Pharaoh's payment has come. The time for Pharaoh's payment has come. Pharaoh said, who is this Lord? The Lord went to Moses, and he told Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, I am the Lord, and this right here, this first one, is just a taste of how you will know. So Moses and Aaron did what the Lord said. They met Pharaoh in the morning. They spoke to him the judgment because he did not listen to the Lord, and they turned the water of the Nile and the water surrounding the Nile and all of the fresh water systems of Egypt into blood to the point where there was no drinking water to be drawn from any of the freshwater systems in all of Egypt. The Bible says that the Pharaoh gathered as a, as a means of sort of showing you, well, you say he is the Lord, I'll show you that I am the Lord. I've descended from the gods. Pharaoh gathered his magici- magicians and They had fresh water in their pots, which we'll talk about in a minute. And they turned the water in their pots to blood. Basically, at that point, Pharaoh was not shaken. He said, well, if my magicians can do this, um, then it must be pretty easy. It must not be something that uh, I should be too concerned about. And his heart was still hardened, and he went back into his home. The waters of the fresh water of Egypt lasted this way for seven days. This is a wild story. The plagues of God in the story of the book of Exodus, they're wild. They're fantastic. But we must believe them. We must hold them as literal and we must hold them as historical and we must hold them as true. This is 
the first plague of the God of Israel against the gods of Egypt. What we, what we find here, friends, is that God is just beginning. And that as we go along, that the level of the plagues will increase to the point that Pharaoh will finally relent. He will finally let the people of God go. I have some practical application that I want to point to you today, but I do want to point, I do want to talk about three difficulties. Because it's often that sometimes I leave the difficulties of the text, I'll just allude to them, and I'll leave them for missional community gathering. And you can talk about these in MC, but I also want to talk about them with you today because I want to sort of help address these. And the first is this. It's difficult, and I've already alluded to this a little bit, but did this actually happen historically and literally? Is, did this actually happen historically and literally? This is, this, is a, this is a point of contention for people. This is a point of difficulty. And the short answer to this is yes. This absolutely happened historically, and this is a literal historical event in history. There will be people who will try to explain uh, away this event in a historical sense or even a, a literal sense. There will be people, some people who just simply say, well, this is, this is just a way of God symbolizing His power or some other abstract Christian thought, which I reject wholesale. This is not what the patriarchs, patriarchs thought. This is not what the New Testament saints thought. This is not what other Christian early church theologians thought. We see in Psalm 78, he turned the rivers into blood. They could not drink from the streams. That's also echoed in Psalm 105. This is uh, an allusion to the, the Nile turning into blood. There was a manuscript that was written around the time of, a, of Exodus that alludes to this. The river is blood. If one drinks of it, one reacts and thirsts for water. There's also a, rev uh, a reference in Revelation to judgment coming by blood being poured out into the waters. Another good thought of this is, and this is important, God showing his power. What's the first plague? How does God show his power? The first plague is God turns the water into blood. How went then when the God-man came to earth did he show his power? What was the first, what was the first uh, miracle of Jesus? What was the first way he showed his power? He turned the water into wine. You think it's any, you think it's any coincidence? You think it's any just, you know, well, this is just odd that that happened. You think it's any coincidence that Jesus chose to change the water into, it wasn't white wine, okay, friends? Jesus chose to change the water into red wine. It was no coincidence that Jesus used this display of his power to symbolize, in a way, how God displayed his power over the gods of Egypt a long, long time ago. Amen. Jesus believed and taught and operated as if this were a literal event in history. The patriarchs believed and taught and operated as this were, was a literal event in history. The early church fathers, the New Testament saints, the apostles, John in Revelation. Friends, we cannot be embarrassed to say that the Bible is a historical, uh, accurate and reliable historical document. It is much more than that, but it is a reliable and accurate historical. As a matter of fact, the Bible as a historical document has more proof texts and manuscripts than any other historical document of its time or before. Or even after, for that matter. The Bible has more proof texts and manuscripts than most historical documents that would talk to us about our early church, our early American fathers. We can prove more about the Bible 
And there's still things being found, like uh, in the 50s, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We can, find, we can find and prove more about the Bible than we can prove and find about the early church, uh, American fathers. The Bible is historical. Don't be embarrassed to say and to stand up for the Bible as a historical document. This is a literal historical event. So, um, excuse me, I lost my place. Okay, here we go. Beyond all of that, what I just said, the Bible is, uh, the Bible itself attests by its language that this was a literal uh, transformation. Uh, Verse 20 says the water changed or it turned into. The Hebrew word is hafak, which literally means transformed. And then the word dam is the Hebrew word for blood, which is not just any thick red substance. It's not, didn't, it never represented algae. It never represented um, sand, red sand. It represented blood and almost all of its occurrences in the Bible. Remember, the Bible is a historic and accurate document. Some may want to say, if you don't, if they, they may take it as a literal or, histo- I mean, they may take it as a historical event, but not take it as a literal event. Some may say that the waters did not literally turn to blood. They may deny the literal aspect of, but hold to historical. People may say, well, the water didn't literally turn to blood. What happened was, there was a, a large rain, a flood, and red soil came down the Nile, or, or, or maybe it was some algae, some red algae that popped up at that time and made the waters unlivable for the fish and undrinkable for the animals and for humans. Now, I hold to, to both the historical and the literal interpretation, but even if you hold to that interpretation instead of what the Bible literally says, Isn't it amazing that the God who controls the waters brought red algae just at the time that Moses struck the waters of the Nile with his rod? Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God brought the floods that brought the red sand to to right in front of Pharaoh that made the waters undrinkable, that made the fish die? It's amazing. Friends, the problem, the problem with not taking a literal and historical view of what, the, uh, of what God says in the Bible is this. You have to do all sorts of theological and histor- historical gymnastics to get your story more believable than the one that was already presented to you. You have to do all sorts of gymnastics, all sort of uh, historical and literary and, and, and all sorts of gymnastics to get, you, to get your story even halfway believable or even close to being as believable as what the Bible has already presented. This was a literal plague of God over the gods of Egypt where he turned the water, all of the freshwater systems, into, drink, uh, into literal blood, undrinkable, enough to kill the fish, enough to where the livestock couldn't drink, to where the people couldn't drink. This is how God showed his power over the gods of Egypt and over the earth. And I think we would do best to hold to a literal and historical view. And stop worrying about um, uh, how this, this does not somehow, mir- miraculous sayings does not, does not how somehow uh, take Christians away from a scientific viewpoint or standard. It does not somehow try to disprove science. We can still be science believers and not science deniers and hold to the miraculous things that the Bible 
tells us. A second problem I want to address really quickly is where did the fresh water come from that Pharaoh's magicians had? It appears that the work of the Lord through Moses and Aaron turned all of the fresh water in Egypt to blood. But yet the magicians of Pharaoh brought fresh water before Pharaoh and Moses to perform the same act that Moses did. They turned the fresh water in the jars into blood. Now, if we believe in the historical and literal, literal version of the plague, then how can we believe this part? How is there still fresh water? Well, a few explanations, and I don't hold to these first two, but these are some way that people have tried to describe. One would say, one would uh, be that the water turning into blood uh, could have been a process. That it started at the Nile, and then it went to the other tribu- tributaries, and it went to ponds and, and any sort of puddle or anything, and, and it turned that into as a process. And so it just hadn't made it to the jars of uh, the, the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian priest. Well, I don't, I don't hold to that. Another could have said, another could say, well, maybe this only affected the Egyptians, and God had preserved fresh water for the Israelites. Have you ever wondered about that? Like, what did the Israelites drink? What did the Israelites drink? I don't know. Um, that's big-time conjecture. Um, here's, what I, here's what I think. I think that, um, and I'm not, sort, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by, by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that the Bible, I, I mean, I think that the, the plague turned all of the freshwater systems into blood and not the stuff that had already been gathered. So it turned the Nile into blood, and it turned uh, Sardis Lake into blood, and it turned Enon into blood, but it didn't turn the water that had been gathered. And, and here's why I think that. I'm not a... I'm not a um, I'm not a scholar in Hebrew necessarily. I took enough Hebrew just to get me in trouble. Um, but this, didn't, this also didn't come from me. This didn't come from me. Um, the, the original word here for vessels or jar is not in the Hebrew text. It's not in the Hebrew text. So it said the, it turned the Nile in, it turned the ponds, it turned the rivers, it turned all that into blood. And then it says even the vessels of wood, even the vessels of stone. Well, the, the original word, vessel, or the v- word for vessels is not found in the original text. <coughs> so it literally would have said it turned the wood and the stone. The wood and the stone. Now this is significant. Um, now, this may seem like a stretch to you, but if, we, if you want to talk about it and we can uh, do some study together on it, I'm fine with that. But it's significant because uh, the word wood and stone was often used to describe the idols, uh, just in general, but specifically would have been used to describe the idols of the people of Egypt. So these wood and stone idols, even the Bible, the Bible says, even these wood and stone, if you take it, the, the way I'm taking it here, even these wood and stone idols would be covered in blood. And so here's the connection, and this is more fantastic if this is true. And it's all conjecture a little bit, so it's hard to tell. But each morning, the Egyptian priest would wash the wood and stone idols every morning. And they would wash them with the water, the fresh water, water of the Nile, or, or wherever they had gathered the water. If you believe this stance is true then, the priests of the Egyptians were forced to wash the idols of wood and stone with blood. So they would have washed the idol for Ra or for Osiris. Or it would have been an extra slap in the face when they took 
the produce of happy, the production of happy, their own God, and they washed happy in blood. They washed happy in its own failure. So if this were true, then the water um, that is in the stone and in the wood would have been put on by the priest. Um, so this, is, I, I, this may not interest you. I know that it's sort of historical or whatever. Um, but it's interesting to me because if it's true, then it's an extra slap in the face by God to this point. So my opinion is that the plague only affected the fresh water that had not been drawn. And here's another one. Here's another one that uh, has always been a problem with me. It's always been something I've wondered, and I've wondered it with all of the plagues, not just or, or any time the, the things were duplicated. But why were Pharaoh's magicians able to produce the same results? I often wonder that. I often think about that. I often think, okay, God, that's powerful. If you can turn the water into blood, that's awesome. Now, how are these dudes doing it? So as a young man, I often wondered how these uh, magicians kept popping up and imitating what Moses was doing. Isn't, wasn't the whole purpose of God's, uh, God doing these acts to show his power? To show that he was the one to be worshipped. He was the one to be feared. So then how did Pharaoh keep having these dudes that kept doing the same thing? Now I want to point out something to you about this act, and it will also sort of lead to our first point of application. The magicians, in every instance, could only imitate what God was doing through Moses, and they could not remedy it. This is important. What happened when, uh, <coughs> what happened when Aaron threw down his staff, it turned into a cobra, it turned into a serpent. They threw down their staffs and they turned into serpents. They just imitated what God had already done through Moses. And the more powerful serpent swallowed up the other serpents. Moses turns the water into blood through the power of God. And the, uh, the, the magicians of Pharaoh turned the water into blood through the power, uh, through the, the water in the jar to the power of blood. They were able to imitate but their imitation, especially in this instance, only compounded the problem instead of fixing it. Pharaoh and the magicians looked at Moses and they said, well, see, we can, we can do this also. And Moses and Aaron probably looked at them and said, I hope that wasn't your last supply of fresh water um, because you're, you're going to get thirsty if it was. Friends, you need to hear this. This is absolutely imperative for you to hear. There is real there is real satanic and real evil power that is operating in this, in this world. And it is powerful. It is pow- and it is more powerful than any human will or effort or spirit or, 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 or working. There is real spiritual happenings and real spiritual darkness in this world that enables some people to do and say and know some things that are sort of awe-inspiring. This is why we must be very careful uh, careful and cautious how uh, we handle anything spiritual that is not of the Spirit of God. Now, I talked about this in our MC a little bit on Sunday, but this is why I stay away from movies with spirituality and stuff like that. I stay away from horror films with, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a wimp, so I stay away from horror films in general, but I stay away from horror films with spirituality or anything like that. This is why, friends, even in a joking or, or sarcastic manner, we can't deal with psychics. 
We don't deal with psychics. Even I, I, I don't, I, there was a time where this didn't need to be said, but I feel like it might need to be said. We can't deal with psychics even in a joking or, or sarcastic manner because at, at, the, at the best, they're fake. And at the worst, they have some real power that, they, that they're drawing upon. And friends, you need to know this. All power that is not drawn upon by the Spirit of God is demonic. You understand that? All power that does not come from the Spirit of God is demonic. This is why you can go to the, to, to the game section at Target and you can pull a Ouija board off the shelf. You should stay away from that. Not even joke. This should not even be a joke. It should not even be something that you, you carry into your house. Horoscopes are demonic. Honestly, any power that we draw upon that is not directly from God is demonic. And there are, no, there are no Christian psychics. Listen, there's a church out right now in California called Bethel Church. And they're, and they're doing tarot cards. They're doing tarot cards. Their youth are going out to the graves of, of uh, popular uh, dead Christian people. Or popular people of sort of this... Um, um, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to overgeneralize a charismatic movement, but these are popular people of this charismatic movement, and they're laying on the graves and sucking the spirit of these charismatic people out of the grave. This is considered by many an evangelical church. Can I tell you, friends, this is the power of the demonic. This, and it's crazy, but it's the power of the demonic. And, 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 and we, friends, we must reject wholesale any of this because it's real and it's out there. And if you submit yourself to that, even as a Christian, you can be taken in by that. Even as a Christian, you can be taken in by that on some level. Nevertheless, the magicians were able to perform. They were able to imitate the results. But it didn't, it didn't produce anything but an imitation. So this leads to a few points of application I want to give you today. The first is this. The power that the enemy has is limited to imitation. And ultimately, it's self-defeating. The power that the enemy has is limited to imitation. Even when it seems like Pharaoh had a small victory. After all, it was large enough to convince him that he didn't need to worry about what Moses had just done. Well, my guys just did this. I don't need to worry about it. But even when it seemed like Pharaoh had victory, it served to destroy some of the only remaining fresh water that they had. Therefore, when it seemed that he had victory, it was lost. Friends, the enemy has power. It is limited to imitation, and it is self-defeating. Can you think of another great instance where the enemy showed power that seemed like it was equal to God? It was limited to imitation. It was self-defeating. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ. The, the, the enemy showed power over mankind. It was an imitation of God. The enemy showed power over mankind. Jesus, as the God-man, was placed upon the cross. The enemy showed power that was equal to the power of God at the cross. The enemy was, was the leading force, the driving force that nailed Jesus to the cross. Jesus died on the cross. The enemy probably thought at that point he had his greatest victory. He probably thought he had his victory over God and man. And after three days, Jesus rose to prove that the enemy's power was limited to the imitation and it was ultimately self-defeating. The same power that put Jesus on the cross that caused him to die, it was, it was now listen, now, 
We're getting into semantics a little bit here. It was God who allowed Jesus to die on the cross. It was God, but it was God who allowed the enemy to have this power through people too. But the same power or a similar power that put Jesus to the cross that killed him was the same power that withheld the wrath of God for mankind and gave salvation to all who would believe. The enemy's power is limited to imitation and it's ultimately self-defeating. Friends, you will often have times where you are down and defeated. Often it will be self-inflicted um, or it might be just a life experience just like everyone else has. If you go through experiences in life, it's because you're a human being, not because God's picking on you. That's just, humans have bad experiences. They have good experience. They have joy. They have sorrow. But also we bring stuff upon ourselves um, but many times over the course of our lives, there will be times where we are under attack. We're under attack by the enemy. But friends, you need to understand the enemy's power is limited and it cannot destroy you. The best he can do is imitate. Listen, and this is important. If God gives you something to celebrate and to return glory to him, the enemy will give you a reason to be prideful and to withhold the glory, to keep the glory. If God gives you a reason to be successful in a true and honest way in this world, the enemy will give you a reason to be successful in a deceitful and unethical way. All that he can do is imitate. All that he can do is bastardize the, the way that God does things. Another way we see this imitation is the way we view our dependency on God or the way we cling to other things. Remember, the enemy can only duplicate the results of God, but what God can do is actually solve our problems. The enemy can supply you with alcohol or pills or other things when you're anxious or when you're depressed or when you need relief. But God can solve your anxiousness, your anxiety, your depression. God, God can give you relief. Now, listen, I'm not saying that there aren't times where prescribed medications are helpful. Please, uh, you, you've heard me say this a million times, so don't, don't stop on that. But what I am saying is often the enemy can provide you with cheap substitutes that make you think you are solving your problems, make you think you are getting fulfilled, but only God can solve our problems. Only God can fulfill the holes, fulfill the needs in our lives. The enemy can give you money, he can give you comfort, and he can give you security. For those of us worried about our future and the, those of us worried about the future of our loved, one, loved ones, I think that's all of us. But only God can give you eternal security. The enemy can give you money, but ultimately, and God can give you money, but ultimately you are not responsible for keeping that money. You can't keep that money. If something were to happen, it's completely out of your control whether or not it's in your hands or not. The government has more control over your money than Satan does probably, okay? Um, so anyway, it, it, could, it could happen, uh, and they might be the same. Thank you, Libby. And they might be the same. Um, uh, it can happen immediately, and it could, it could happen at a, at a moment's notice. Privileges and rights and relationships and other sources of fulfillment, although they may fulfill us and they are not necessarily bad things, they can be robbed from us at a moment. Only God can give us the fulfillment that lasts forever. Only God can give us a fulfillment that will endure through all sorts of trials, all sorts of testings, all sorts of tribulation. We find, what we find is that the enemy offers imitations. He offers substitutes for us so that our minds can drift from trusting in the Lord. They are temporary fulfillments. 
This is the reason the Bible, friends, instructs us to set our minds on things above. It's not that money is bad. It's that money as a substitute for God is evil. It's not that friends and family and children and loving our children and loving our friends and family is a bad thing. It's that loving our friends and family and children at where it becomes a substitute for our love, our fulfillment in God is evil. These are all cheap substitutes. It's not that comfort and security It's not that peace, it's not that any of these things are evil, but it's that supplanting those things in the throne room of God is idolatry. The enemy gives us things. Often God gives us these blessings. Often he does, but often abundance is given to us, I think, by the enemy as a means of distracting us from finding fulfillment in God. The enemy doesn't have power over you like you might think as much as he has power to misdirect your affections. Power to misdirect your hope. Pharaoh saw the power of God and he saw the imitation and the imitation was enough for him to be misdirected from the true power, the only power that existed on this earth. And he chose the imitation. Friends, would you not make the same mistake? Because the enemy's power, although it seems powerful, it seems like it is equal or on par with God's. It is, it is just an imitation. And it is not a source of fulfillment. The power of the enemy is limited to imitation. It's self-defeating. We can also see this. The plan of God is for you to stink sometimes. The plan of God is for you to stink sometimes. There's an interesting fulfillment that happens in our story. In our story today, the water turns to blood, and everything living in the water dies. This causes a great stench to come over the land. Now, in a way, this is a fulfillment of what the Israelites said to Moses in Exodus 5. After Moses doubles down, excuse me, (coughs) after Pharaoh doubles down on the brick production uh, requirement that the Israelites were required to give, the Israelites came to Moses and they said, you have made us stink to Pharaoh and his people. You have made us a stench. Boy, if they only knew. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his people. Truly, this is sort of more literally fulfilled now through through the first plague. The Israelites would have been viewed as the root cause of the stench, and now there is a literal stench that comes over the land, and the Israelites are really the cause. You don't think Pharaoh, you think Pharaoh would have looked at God who's in the heavens and said, Whoa, God did this. No, he just said, these darn Israelites did this. They are a stench to me. It was necessary, friends, for the Israelites to stink in front of Pharaoh so that God's power could be displayed. It was necessary for the Israelites to stink because it was not only the act of God, but the lingering stench that caused them to be reminded of just why the judgment of God had come. Sometimes the plan of God, friends, is for you to stink. Now, this comes in two ways. Sometimes it comes with things in your life stinking. Sometimes the things in your life just aren't what you expected them to be. This happens, we've talked about it a thousand times, so we're not going to talk about it today. This happens as a means of showing God the glory in your life and showing others' faithfulness and other godly characteristics as you walk through those trials and tribulations. But there's another way, however, that this is more directly related. When we stink, friends, we, are often, we often stink because we are being gospel proclaimers to the lost. 
when we proclaim the truth of the gospel to the lost and to a dying world, we will be spreading to most people a stench instead of something beautiful to behold. I feel like it's necessary to say this, but it's not because we're jerks or because, we're pe- because people don't want to be around us. It's not because we're harsh or uncouth or we lack tact. We will stink to the world because the gospel message is either a rose or it's a dying corpse. It's either a rose or a dying corpse. This is one of the greatest ways that we distinguish between the saved and the lost. Those who are always trying to explain away the gospel, change the character of Jesus, write hell out of the Bible, or whatever it may be, they do so because the things of God stink to them and they just want to get them away. They just want to eliminate them. They want to wipe them away instead of seeing the truth of the gospel as a sweet-smelling aroma. They see the truth of the gospel as a corpse. And the only way to, to fix this is to remove the stench. You can see this in mainstream Christian culture. Let's cut away the parts that are stinky to the world and make us more palatable. We can be relevant and we can be fun. You also see this in gospel proclamation of discipleship. It's one of the many reasons that people get angry at times when we share the gospel. Because they had surrounded their life with other things, cheap substitutes, and they didn't have to think about the gospel. They thought that if they put enough perfume on, good works, church attendance, I'm a good person. I give to the poor. You know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm kind. I delete my negative post on social media. I type it out. Look, this is the type of person I am. I type bad post out, and then once I read it, I take it off. Now, that is the type of person I am. And so if if it gets to social media, you know that I've already proofread it a couple times, which is even worse, I guess. But anyway, they're just spraying themselves with perfume to try to cover the stench of the gospel. They've surrounded themselves in their life with other things, cheap substitutes that make them don't have to think about the gospel. If I just spray enough of, of this good works perfume, this perfume, this formalism perfume, then I don't have to think about the stench of the gospel. Whenever they got down or had a problem, if it wasn't good works, they could take another drink or take another pill. They could meditate. Or listen to psychobabble. And you come and you offer them the gospel. And if if they don't repent and believe, then they still have to deal with the stench of the gospel. The stench that everything they are trusting in for, for, for fulfillment is a cheap imitation of Christ. I've had people I've discipled or tried to influence get mad at me, separate themselves from me, or, or berate me or talk badly about me to other people because I have spoken truth into their lives. Now, sometimes I was that jerk, and, and it's probably a little justified, but many times I've spoken truth in love with a sort of a seasoned with salt sort of way. The gospel has a stench to them. But I've also had those, some of those people who have repented and believed the gospel and pursued reconciliation and pursued friendship. Because, friends, one way that you know if the gospel is true and if the gospel is real in someone's life is if they don't try to explain it away and they love it for what it is and they cherish it for what it is and it's a sweet-smelling aroma to them as opposed to a stench that needs to be explained away to the world. 
Friends, sometimes it's going to be, oftentimes as a believer, it's going to be necessary that you stink to some people. Because you're going to have to say some hard truths that unless a person belongs to Jesus, they will never believe and they will see as disgusting. I would challenge you to stink a little. But don't do it because you're a jerk. And don't do it because you lack couth or you lack tact. Let your words be seasoned with salt and be an aroma. Because when you're an aroma, to some it's going to be a sweet-smelling aroma that is salvation unto salvation. At least be an aroma for those people. And then there's this last thing, and we'll go through it quickly, I promise. Friends, our, it's sometimes we've got to stink a little bit, and our idols will always let us down. How do you think the Egyptians felt as they dug holes alongside of the Nile for fresh water? You think they lost faith and happy? What about the Egyptian priests who were responsible for organizing worship? Can you imagine them sort of like uh, the image we have in the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? They're dancing around the idols and they're cutting themselves and they're screaming till their voice is gone. Wake up! They're trying to wake up happy. They're trying to wake up the gods. Do you see what's happening down here? Change it! Fix it! They had trusted in happy to get them this far, but what they had found was that happy was never there and was never the source of life. Friends, can I warn you of something? The idols we have in our lives are the same way. What actual security, listen to me, what actual security does working your life away to fill your bank account give you? What actual, what, what tangible security does it give you? To know that it could all be gone tomorrow. What tangible security does it give you to train your kids up to be the best sports players or the best student or the best musician? What tangible security that it gives you does it give you that they will be successful, objectively successful in life? Now again, you're going to have to use some wisdom here and, and understand I'm not saying these things are inherently wrong. These are good things. It's financial security, it's a good thing. You know, your children having interest in loving things, um, not apart from God, but because of God, those are good things. But we can turn good things into bad things quickly, expecting them to be the best at everything, uh, living our life vicariously through our children and, or many other ways. Our children are a good thing, but we can turn them into idols. Marriages, dating relationships, friendships, they're all good things. But when we have all of our dependency, all of our hope, and all of our trust, they become idols. We can turn rest and, and sort of things, self-interest, we can turn those things, those are good things, we can turn those quickly into idols when that becomes our pursuit. Friends, I want to tell you, there's a lot of people, in the, there are people in this room, there are people in our church I, myself included, who have self-interest as an idol in their life. Who pursue, self-interest is not necessarily bad. The Bible says, love others like you love yourself. So there's an expectation from the Lord that you're going to love yourself. So self-interest is not a bad thing. But self-interest as a primary pursuit, where you pursue it more than the Lord, where that's all you can think about. When you give all your heart to it, 
It's an idol. Even the church we attend, our theology, the desires for spiritual manifestations of God, these are all cheap, these all can be cheap imitations of what truth is, and they will eventually let us down. Our jobs will eventually let us down. Our children or significant others, they'll let us down. Our church, the people on our theological team, our side, will let us down. We will not receive gifts or, or strength in areas that we thought we should have. We will soon find out what of these things are idols in our lives. And if they're idols, that we really couldn't function or go on without them. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can work hard to the glory of the Lord in our job that doesn't require us to make an idol out of it. We can love and cherish our family and our loved ones in a biblical way that doesn't require us to make an idol out of it. We can transfer our trust from all of these things, our primary, as means of our primary trust, and trust in the Lord. Friends, I want to tell you, you must, you must surrender and trust the Lord because your idols, whether you know that they're idols or not, will let you down 100% of the time. I want to ask you this question and we'll end with this today. If the story of the Nile River and the freshwater systems of Egypt turning into blood is true, and if the God of the Bible is the one that did it, are you reconciled then with the God of the plagues? Are you reconciled with the God of the plagues? The God who turned the water into blood. Are you reconciled? Because if you're not, friends, it should be a fearful thing in your life to live in an unreconciled manner with that God. The God who sent his son to this earth. The God-man, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who was nailed to a cross, who was buried, who was dead and buried, and who rose again after the third day by his own power to withhold the, or to, to turn the wrath of God from man to him and to save sinners. If you're not reconciled to, this, to that God, you should be in great fear on a daily basis. You should be in great worry. You should not be able to let these cheap imitations sustain you without worrying that there is a greater power yet to come. And that's what we're going to see through the rest of Exodus. There is a greater power yet to come, even in the water and the blood. Because here's the deal. The water and the blood lasted seven days. It lasted seven days. From what we know of it, only fish died. The humans probably lived. It wasn't a mass scale of killing by God. It was a small scale warning. It was a means of grace to Pharaoh and all of the Egyptians that the judgment of God is coming. Friends, you need to be weary. You need to be wary because if you are not in fear, if you are not in surrender to this God, the God of the plagues, then you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to repent and trust in his power. You need to lay aside your idols and trust in this God. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We praise you. We're so grateful that you love us, that you that you show yourself to us, that you have made yourself known not only throughout the history of the Bible, but you have made yourself known in person through the work and person of Jesus Christ who laid down his life as the propitiation, Lord, the means of withholding or turning the wrath of God from us to him to save us from our sins to the glory of God the Father. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We give you this day. We honor you by our life and our actions. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.
Amen.